This episode of Post Reports Podcast is brought to you by Facebook. At Facebook, we've taken critical steps to prepare for the U.S. elections. We've more than tripled our safety and security teams, implemented five-step ad verification, and launched a new voting information center. Learn more at facebook.com slash about slash elections. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's the Louisa Beck from The Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth Reinhardt at The Washington Post. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm... This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, September 21st. Today, the legacy of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the future of her seat on the Supreme Court. In the three days since Justice Ginsburg died, I think that so many of us are in this kind of complicated headspace because we want to talk about who this person was. You know, she had so many achievements. She was such a groundbreaking litigator, a groundbreaking justice. But at the same time, it feels like we immediately have to talk about what the implications are of this, what this could mean for the future of our country, for the election and the future of the judicial system. Yeah, that's right. There isn't much time for either side uh, or much of America to mourn Justice Ginsburg and, and reflect on all that she gave the nation. And that's in part because the election is 40-something days away, and there is one of the most explosive things in politics entered right into it, a Supreme Court vacancy, and not just any one that replaces such an iconic justice, and then one that could tilt the court conservative for generations. This is Amber Phillips. She's a reporter for The Fix, and she analyzes congressional politics for The Post. Hours Friday night after the announcement of Justice Ginsburg passing, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell wasted no time in saying, yeah, we're going to move, we're going to fill this seat, and we fully expect President Trump to nominate someone this week and Republicans to get going on it because there just isn't much time to stop and pause if they want to accomplish what they want to accomplish. And of course... Democrats have major objections to that. And all that means is, as we're trying to reflect on Justice Ginsburg, we are in the middle of a major political battle at an already extremely divisive time for the country. You know, I I don't think it should surprise anyone that Mitch McConnell is going forward with this. Yes, in 2016, when in February, Justice Scalia died and Mitch McConnell said that it was too late in the game to replace a justice and that they needed to wait for after the election. Look to history. We haven't filled a vacancy created during a presidential election year in 80 years. You'd have to go back to 1888, Grover Cleveland in the White House, to find the last time a Senate controlled by the opposite party of the president confirmed a justice in a presidential election year. And so obviously this strikes a lot of people as incredibly hypocritical that he thinks that it's time to try to get a new justice in before November. But what is his actual argument? Like, how is he trying to frame what was different in 2016 with now? His argument is layered in what he says is legal precedent, which is Last time around 2016, there was a Democratic administration and a Republican Senate. This time around, he's saying we're all Republicans in the White House and the Senate, all the key players. And so, you know, we're not breaking any precedent by doing this. 
the problem with that argument is that Supreme Court experts and historians I've talked to say the whole reason there haven't been any, you know, cross-party election year nominations since about the 1880s is because there just haven't been many election year nominations. It might seem to us these past couple election cycles that this is, you know, a common thing, but it's really not. Justices do not leave the bench in an election year if they can avoid it. And so, you know, McConnell really is forging his own precedent here to try to explain what is, you know, obviously a, a, a political maneuver that benefits him. I want you to use my words against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, who it, whoever it might be, make that nomination. And you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right. The rules say he can do this, right? Like, because there are no rules. The Senate can can advise and consent on a president's nominee whenever they want or whenever they don't want. And in 2016, it benefited McConnell politically to not hold a hearing on Obama's nominee. In 2020, it benefits him to hold a hearing and hold a vote. So he's going to do it. But what are the chances that he's going to get every Republican senator to go along with him? And who are the potential defectors? We already know that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is not going to get every Republican senator. And that's a problem for him because he can only afford about four defections. This weekend already, there are two. Uh, Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska have said that they they can't or they probably won't vote for President Trump's nominee before the election. There's three to four other senators who expressed privately or publicly concern with moving forward with this that we're going to be watching. And it's possible that Mitch McConnell doesn't have the votes, but it's also possible that he does have the votes. There are some Senate Republicans in tight re-election races because as all this is playing out, there's also the battle for the Senate majority going on right now in earnest. And some of those people came out over the weekend, like Martha McSally in Arizona and um, Tom Tillis in North Carolina and Joni Ernst in Iowa, Kelly Loeffler in Georgia, and said, no, we're okay with this vote. They don't see as much political harm in supporting moving forward with this. And for Republicans in the Senate, In terms of the election and their chances of being reelected, what are the costs and benefits of doing this vote on a new nominee before the election versus waiting until after? Strategists I talked to on both sides over the weekend said they see advantages and disadvantages. For Republicans, they feel like this could help excite their base And some Republican-leading voters who have been kind of meh on President Trump and the Senate, especially with the pandemic going on, Um, it's been dragging down Senate Republicans in tight races as well. President Trump's large disapproval for handling of the pandemic. You know, a conservative court would almost certainly hear challenges to the Roe v. Wade law legalizing abortion. That is just something that conservative voters have been more animated about in the past and and understand the implications of that. And so they feel like this could help bring some of those disaffected Republican voters back into the fold for them. They're also concerned um, and Democrats are excited about the chance that this push to nominate someone so close to an election after being so clear about not wanting to do it four years ago, alienates moderate voters. You know, this would tilt the court conservative for potentially generations, a six to three conservative tilt 
is the nation really that conservative? What about these, you know, moderate, independent, suburban swing voters who have been trending more and more democratic over the past couple election cycles? Is that really a court that they want to see? And and is this the way they want that vacancy to be filled? Democrats are hopeful that it could turn off those moderate voters in these swing states. And I think the calculus on this is also dependent on who the actual nominee is. And what are we hearing about who President Trump is considering? President Trump indicated over the weekend that he wants to nominate a woman. He thinks that could help his standing with women voters, which he's been struggling with, again, is largely as a result of his handling of the pandemic. So, you know, my colleagues who've been chasing this all weekend report that there are two leading contenders. One is Amy Coney Barrett. She's a conservative federal judge. As for your question about Roe, I think that the line that other nominees before the committee have drawn in refraining from comment about their agreement or disagreement or the merits or demerits of any Supreme Court precedent is a prudent one. Because I would commit, if confirmed, to follow unflinchingly all Supreme Court precedent, and I would not want to leave the impression that I would give some precedents less weight than others because of any kind of, you know, academic disagreement with one. Oh, and she made it to like the top round in 2018 when there was an open seat that eventually got filled by Brett Kavanaugh. Another is Barbara Lagoa. She is a federal judge. Over 50 years ago, my parents like so many others, came to this country from Cuba to start rebuilding their lives in a land that offered them opportunity, but more importantly, freedom. I know that the farthest thing from their minds when they arrived here with only the clothes on their back and their education was that their only child would be here standing today with the governor at Florida at an event like this today, especially since my father had to give up his dream of becoming a lawyer. I cannot tell you how thrilled I am today to be able to share this with my parents, Antonio Yaraceli Lagoa. Lagoa is someone who's a little bit new to this finalist list, but she is also from a key swing state of Florida. And our colleagues report that there's a big push among uh, Trump supporters in Florida to say this could really help you in this state because the president has been down in some polls there. I think with these two potential nominees in particular, there is so much focus on their attitudes and stances on reproductive rights and what that would mean for potentially activating Republicans and potentially activating Democrats. But it seems like Joe Biden is trying to talk more about health care and how these potential nominees might have an impact on the the future of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, that's right. Democrats seem more of a political advantage to talking about that policy over like this classic uh, social issue of abortion, which conservatives are really drumming up right now. And one reason for that is the Supreme Court is scheduled to hear a a court case just like a week after the election on whether to basically knock down the Affordable Care Act. Effectively, they could decide to do that, which experts I've talked to say would just decimate the law. The Trump administration has urged the Supreme Court to do that without a plan. And so Democrats campaign and and won on in 2018 being the party that will protect coverage for pre-existing conditions and protect the healthcare coverage that you like. And they see an opportunity to revive that, you know, and, and feel like that's particularly resonant in a pandemic. So what are the actual next steps? How are we going to see this unfold this week? 
we're probably going to see the president nominate someone, uh, most likely a woman, in probably this week, maybe even the next couple days. We're going to see Senate Republicans gather over the next couple days to plan out their strategy for how they keep everyone else in line to make sure they have the majority votes to do this. We're going to see a lot of pressure on senators like Mitt Romney of Utah, Cory Gardner of Colorado for various reasons uh, to say how they might vote and whether they support pushing forward with this vote. And then we're going to watch Mitch McConnell do what he does best, which is be very focused and drive very hard to get this vacancy filled over the next couple weeks or months even. Amber Phillips analyzes politics for the fix at the Post. A system of justice will be the richer for diversity of background and experience. It will be the poorer if all of its members are cast from the same mold. It seems crazy to say that you're surprised or shocked when an 87-year-old woman with cancer has died, and yet I think it was shocking to everyone. It was shocking, and really just as shocking as in 2016 when Justice Scalia died unexpectedly. My name is Robert Barnes. I cover the Supreme Court for The Washington Post. For years, there has been this kind of air of invincibility around Justice Ginsburg, even though she had been sick in the past, that there was a sense that she was just a sort of like iron-willed woman who could outlast anything. Yeah, you're right. And in fact, I think sometimes she overdid it a little bit because of that. Folks sort of made her out to be superwoman. And in fact, she was an older person, quite frail. She took care of herself working with a trainer. And, you know, even during this, she had had a treadmill brought to her apartment in the Watergate so that she could exercise inside. But she traveled an awful lot when she could. She had a schedule that would be exhausting for most uh, much younger people. And so, you know, part of it was this sort of persona and aura uh, about her as indestructible. And how did she end up on the court in the first place? What was her trajectory before then? Well, she was a crusading lawyer. She has probably done more for gender equality than any other lawyer in America. She brought a number of cases to the Supreme Court that tried to erase distinctions between genders in law. I expect to see three, four, perhaps even more women on the high court bench, women not shaped from the same mold, but of different complexions. 
she was as famous for what she did before she got to the Supreme Court as what she did afterwards. And the fact that she was so strategic in how she approached those cases and the cases that she chose in order to pursue that agenda of of gender equality. She looked for cases that would resonate with the public and with the justices. She often represented men in these cases, not women. Those were men who were discriminated against in, in ways because of their gender. Yes, because of the way the law had made distinctions between men and women. You know, one of her most famous cases, and the one she said was her favorite, involved a man named Stephen Weisenfeld, whose wife died in childbirth. His son was fine. So he said that he wanted to stay at home while his son was young and take care of him rather than work full time. He applied for Social Security benefits that his wife had accumulated as a teacher. But he was told that, no, those are mother's benefits, not father's benefits, and that he wasn't entitled to the money. Where the breadwinner is male, the family gets more. And where the breadwinner is female, the family gets less. And so that was exactly the kind of case that Justice Ginsburg, then lawyer Ginsburg, was looking for that would show that uh, distinctions between men and women in the law were based on stereotypes about who would be the caregiver, for instance, to a child or to a parent. And she, of course, won that case. And interestingly, she remained friends with him the rest of her life. She performed the marriage of his son, the the boy, little boy who was at the center of this case. And later when Stephen Weisenfeld remarried, she officiated at his wedding also. That's amazing. And once she got on the court, what was her reputation among her colleagues? And not just in terms of where she skewed on the political spectrum, but just like as a colleague and coworker and a fellow thinker. Well, it's interesting that she was seen and opposed by some during her nomination as not being liberal enough. There were questions about her support of abortion rights because she had criticized the legal reasoning of Roe v. Wade, not the outcome, but the reasoning of it. So she was seen as something of a moderate when she was put on the court. You know, she's very much a what judges or and lawyers like to call a judge's judge. She was very interested in administrative procedure law, which is not something that's terribly uh, sexy. Um, <laughs> she is someone who's very concerned with the facts of the case and very prepared. Uh, she was very precise and she didn't believe in the court making big strides all at once. She believed in sort of incremental movement of the law. You know, once this cult of personality developed around Justice Ginsburg, I'm wondering how she responded to that or if it changed her at all, you know, that that suddenly there were T-shirts with her face and there were skits about her on Saturday Night Live. Don't worry, worry, my kittens, I'm never going to give you up. Never gonna let you down, never gonna turn around and retire. I mean, this is a time in which I don't think most Americans could even name most people on the Supreme Court. And she just became this larger than life personality that I don't think we've seen in recent history. 
Did she like it? Yes, she did. She enjoyed it. She liked the attention and she liked that she was reaching a younger generation of people. Young lawyers and and women and men in law school, you know, flocked to her appearances. She liked having that outlet. Now, sometimes she went too far. She sometimes she is someone who will answer questions when they're asked of her. And the to critics went too far in talking about cases and how the court should look at them. She famously criticized Donald Trump. Something happened recently where Justice Ginsburg uh, made some very, very inappropriate statements toward me and toward a tremendous number of people, many, many millions of people that I represent. During the 2016 election. Which is usually considered a big no-no for justices, right? To comment on current political situations. Absolutely. And she later said that she was wrong, that she shouldn't have done that. She never quite apologized to Donald Trump, but she said that she was wrong to have made those comments uh, and vowed not to do it again. You know, on Saturday morning, um, after the news came out about about her passing, and I was walking around my neighborhood in D.C., and I saw a lot of people wearing RBG shirts and, and holding totes. Um, but also I saw a lot of women wearing shirts that quoted that line, nevertheless, she persisted, which, of course, is not about Ginsburg. It's a quote about Senator Warren. But I do think that there is something about that idea that resonates so much with Ginsburg's trajectory to the court, that so many paths were blocked for her and life and her career were so challenging for her, but that they all ended up in a direction that led to the Supreme Court in in a way that is really surprising, but feels like a kind of like a parable. Well, you know, that she recounts uh, often a conversation that she had with Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman named to the Supreme Court. And like Justice Ginsburg, she graduated at the top of her class at Stanford Law School. She couldn't get a job as a lawyer. And as Justice Ginsburg told the story, when they talked about it, Justice O'Connor said... Look at this, Ruth. If we had been, all these opportunities had been available to us, we would probably be retired partners at big law firms by now and not sitting on the Supreme Court. And so that's how Justice Ginsburg often looked at sort of the obstacles that had been thrown in her way. She was able to, you know, they sort of directed her on a path that got her to a much different and higher calling than she might have had otherwise. Robert Barnes covers the Supreme Court for The Post. This episode of Post Reports Podcast is brought to you by Facebook. At Facebook, we've taken critical steps to prepare for the U.S. elections. We've more than tripled our safety and security teams, implemented five-step ad verification, and launched a new voting information center. Learn more at facebook.com slash about slash elections. Because Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Do you know who that is? She's some kind of famous lawyer who helped us in human rights. Right? Yeah. Where are we? Can you describe where we are? I don't know the name of it. 
Yes. It's called the Supreme Court. Supreme Court. Yeah. After the news came out Friday night about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, people started to gather outside the Supreme Court. Post Reports producer Alexis Diao went down with her family. It was the beginning of Rosh Hashanah. I really loved her, and um, I wouldn't be who I am because of all that she fought for. She gave us rights and opportunities that we could have never imagined. I was born in 1971, and so that was just the beginning of the equal rights era for women, and I'm, I'm a true child of all she worked for, and I just feel so grateful and so humbled, and I just want to pay my respects. Okay, Rachel Freitag. She's the reason why like, we have the rights that we have and why I can do the like, work that I do. So We also didn't know this many people would be here. Right. I just kind of showed up. I just came because I didn't uh, know what else to do, so I was glad that there were other people here. It seemed like there would be no better place to spend the evening than on the steps of the Supreme Court. So... Can you tell me what year is on your shirt right now? Sure. It's, uh, it says Notorious RBG um, at the bottom, and it's her portrait with uh, the Notorious B.I.G. crown on top. I'm Michael Russo. Jeremy Tagman. Abigail Randall. And my name is Bridget Cummings. I'm Erin O'Brien, and this is Mary O'Brien. She just was such an influence. Yeah. And I think it was one of the first ones that our kids, they knew about her, they knew her life story, you know, they read her biography, and... How are you guys feeling today? I don't know. I'm kind of feeling uh, kind of anxious, but well, I'm I'm just glad to be like here, part of history. You know? Yeah, remember her. Remember. Her. I went to the Supreme Court early on Saturday morning. Um, It was about 7.30 when I got there. Throughout the weekend, people continued to gather outside the Supreme Court. There were signs and candles and heaps of flowers. Caroline Kitchener was there. She's a staff writer for The Lily. And the first thing she noticed was just who was in the crowd. I immediately was so moved by the number of mothers and young daughters that I saw there. You saw, you know, little girls with flowers running up, placing them down, running back to their mom, giving them a hug. I decided that I would try to talk to some of these mothers and daughters that I saw there. Um, my name is Erin Hawk. What's your name? Oh, it's scary. I know. <laughs> Her name is Grace. When the news came across and, like, I just screamed to my husband. I told him, I said, I, I need to take her down there this weekend. Like, I needed her to see this. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you know, Lucy, this is Lucy. And how old are you, Lucy? Eight years old. You're eight years old. So she knows about her, and she knows about her, like, as someone on a T-shirt. Mm-hmm. And so it was, like, a really good opportunity to explain that, you know, just more specifically as opposed to, oh, she's a real cool Supreme Court justice, right. and we love her. And she's kind of like our family because... They said she had no idea how to cook, so the husband cooked. And when I heard that she died, I was very heartbroken. 
Well, and I think to, for us also just to look around and see other people who feel the same sadness yeah. we do, there's something, I mean, that's the re- same reason we went to the Women's March, yeah. it's just to kind of be around people who, you know, are feeling the same heartbreak. Yeah. I mean, you know, standing over there crying, and I look over, and the other woman's crying, you know, and it's just like, <laughs> Uh, well, my mom's kind of a big fan of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and at the moment kind of want to be a lawyer, and she was kind of my inspiration Awesome. For that, so. How old are you? I'm 16. And your name? Harper. Harper. Okay. What about you? What, what, what makes you want to come out here this morning? I do want to be a lawyer like her, and I think she's really oh. inspiring. So, so. And how old are you? I'm 12. You're 12. And your name? Marnie. Marnie. Okay. I think it's really cool to, like... If I were to be a lawyer or even a Supreme Court justice like RVG, it's really inspiring to like how she was really inspiring to like little girls all around the world. You've, <laughs> you've inspired two <laughs> feminist lawyers in states. <laughs> and uh, that's pretty, I think that's right. I think she did that, right? <laughs> yeah. She was a personal part of the relationship between these mothers and daughters, these mothers who were trying to teach their daughters about feminism and empowerment and that they they should never allow someone to tell them that they're less than. RBG felt like a central part of that lesson. Caroline Kitchener is a writer for The Lily. Lexis Diao is a producer for Post Reports. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Now is an important time to be engaged with the news and to rely on reporters and journalism that you trust. For just $29, you can become a Washington Post subscriber and get a whole year of digital access to the Post. To get that offer just for Post Reports listeners, go to postreports.com slash offer. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This episode of Post Reports Podcast is brought to you by Facebook. At Facebook, we've taken critical steps to prepare for the U.S. elections. We've more than tripled our safety and security teams, implemented five-step ad verification, and launched a new voting information center. Learn more at facebook.com slash about slash elections.